The Mix Room with Genelec. Today we are welcoming Leslie Gaston Bird onto the podcast, an audio engineer specialising in re-recording, mixing and sound editing, owner of Mix Messiah Productions and author of the book Woman in Audio. Welcome Leslie, how are you today? Hi, I'm doing really well, thanks. Wow, thank you so much for joining us today and where are we speaking to you from today, Leslie? Hi, I'm I'm actually sitting in Brighton, England in my studio Brighton. in the Seven Isles area of Brighton, England. Oh, lovely. What a lovely place to live. I love Brighton. And I'm detecting, obviously, uh, from the accent, you're obviously not from Brighton. You're from Ohio, right? So how why, how come you've ended up there, of all places? Oh, wow. So um, let's see. How did I end up in Brighton? I married a man from Devon, um, and he uh, we actually lived in Denver together for 10 years, and I think he got tired of the heat and the politics and so <laughs> not that you can escape that kind of thing but uh yeah we came to Brighton when our kids were um about ready to start kindergarten and first grade oh nice okay that makes sense now and um well you've definitely mm-hmm. escaped the heat not sure about the politics just a different kind of politics I suppose right 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 <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah how's how's it been going for you over the last year then how disruptive or or not disrupted, have your plans become? Have you been able to just carry on working? What's it been like for you? Yeah, yeah, I've just been carrying on working. Um, It's, you know, I think, um, you know, my heart is with everybody who's been touched by this pandemic and however ways or whatever ways we've all been um, struggling with uh, worrying about our elderly loved ones, about ourselves, about our neighbors, and um, so just, uh, you know, I guess when everything first went down, we were just worried, you know, more than anything, like how, what is this and how are we going to be? But as we sort of settled into this, okay, it's, you know, we'll just need to stay apart. And, um, I think what, what provided the impetus for me, uh, getting brick and mortar as they call it, uh, I was working out of my home. And I was, I'm a freelance re-recording mixer and sound editor. And so I was doing stuff at home. And then when uh, the pandemic and the lockdowns came along, it was untenable. You know, I have two kids. They're not small, small, but they're not teenagers either. They're right in the middle. And, you know, so there's Legos and dolls and schoolwork and um, my studio. <laughs> I'm like, this is not working. Uh, and so I uh, heard through a friend that there was an opportunity. Um, somebody was moving out of uh, this place. This used to be owned by Dave Austin of The Edit. And so he moved out of this place. And so I came by and I looked at it and I said, this is pretty cool. And um, yeah, I've been able just to keep working. All you know, Most of my clients are American. I've got a few British clients. Um, and, you know, I get my stuff, um, you know, through file transfers and we talk through email and we do our Zoom calls and, and I just carry on with uh, with working. And that's that's been the paradigm for the last year and a half. Right. OK, well, it's nice to see you've been able to carry on going. And are you seeing mm-hmm. things picking up at all now with um, TV and films getting back to productions again? Are you seeing an uptake no. in your work? Has it just been steady? No, I mean, my work is steady. Um, I haven't been getting calls. 
to do work on the supposedly, um, you know, now that the bottleneck is open Mm. and uh, I'm not sure why, you know, I keep my networks open and I, you know, try to keep apprised of who's doing what, but the, um, I mean, the kind of work I'm doing now is podcasts. Uh, but I am, but I just finished a film. Actually, I finished a film in April. So I'm just sort of uh, keeping my eyes and ears open for the next thing, whatever it is. So I don't think I'm part of the London Soho freelancer boom that's happening. I'm kind of like the outsider, Brighton, you know. Oh, I see. <laughs> if there even is a boom. I mean, it sounds like there is. Um, but yeah, I'd love to be part of it. I'd love to be part of it. But um, yeah, I don't think the, the, um, I don't know. We'll see. It's something that I definitely want to tap into. Okay, interesting. And um, sometimes, uh, you know, when I interview people, I like to cherry pick out a couple of things I've done. And uh, if anyone should look at your website, they'll see how hard that might be for me to do, given what you've achieved. It's uh, pretty impressive. So just for the benefit of our listeners, um, Mm -hmm. this is just some of uh, Leslie's achievements. So in addition to your audio qualifications and experience of course you are a former governor at large for the audio engineering society of course an author a member of the recording academy academy excuse me the association of motion picture sound and motion picture sound editors that is missing out tons of your other experiences you know you've worked in broadcast uh, you've been a bassist you've engineered <laughs> albums tenured associate professor at the university of colorado denver so okay this is a lot. Um, let's start at the beginning. When did you first become interested in the world of audio? Because I know I've seen since you were a child, you love playing with your dad's reel-to-reel tape recorder. So obviously yeah. there was some kind of interest that sparked off in you when you were just a kid, right? Yeah, my dad had a reel-to-reel recorder. And uh, like I said, we were living in Ohio. Uh, my dad was a musician, so he has demo tapes um, that he would do on reel-to-reel. And um it's a little Ampex, I believe. And so I'd say, hey, you know, here's how you put the little rubber stoppers on. And here's how you thread the machine. And, you know, I, you know, I had my little teeny tiny fingers. I was like five or six, you know. Um, you know, and then he had this little, I, I don't remember, are they, they carbon-based microphones where you tap on them. And <laughs> anyway, I love tapping on it, you know, just because you can see. And, um, you know, just putting the mic right here to talk into it. And um, yeah, those are my earliest memories, but uh, really it was, you know, I think the thing that really started me off was um, when we had cable television and I started seeing movies like Alice in Wonderland with Peter Sellers and Dudley Moore and Fiona Richardson. And um, I love the soundtrack and I wanted to listen to that soundtrack without having to wait for the movie to come on. So I recorded a tape from HBO and then I wanted to figure out how to get the videotape sound onto a cassette sound. So as you can imagine, this was super noisy (laughs) recording. This was before we had hi-fi tracks, right? This was even before hi-fi. So I recorded from a videotape to a cassette. And I think, you know, um, that that was the beginning of it. My dad had this, in in the United States, there's a place called Radio Shack. Did you guys have Radio Shack here? I don't think so. Yeah, some, you know, you get um, cables and adapters and batteries and, you know, electronic-y stuff. 
So it was a little electronic store and my, my dad had like all these cables and he's like, well, we have to go out of the VCR into the cassette machine then out of the cassette machine back into the receiver so you can hear it. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm plugging all these RCA phono cables and, and I made my little tape and I did that too with, um, I did Alice in Wonderland and I, I did Animal Olympics, Graham Goldman from 10CC. Yeah, right on. But he did a soundtrack to this movie called Animal Olympics. And it's a great soundtrack. Wow. I mean, you know, they had rocking songs on there and disco songs on there and ballads on there. And um, yeah, so, you know, I had to have the soundtrack to Animal Olympics. I don't think you can buy a CD of the soundtrack of Animal Olympics. They would make so much money. There are so many 50 year old people, you know, who watch that thing every time it came on. Right. Because this is I mean, maybe you had a VCR at home. Maybe you didn't. But there was this sweet spot in between 1978 and 1982 where um, you watch things on HBO. We didn't have Netflix. We didn't have Apple TV. We had cable. Mm -hmm. And whenever these movies come on, we would sit and watch them. And so if you're listening out there, Sony Pictures or whoever, uh, we need the we need the soundtrack to Animal Olympics. Anyway, so I made my own mixtape, and then um, you know I played in school bands and stuff. And by the time I graduated high school, uh, I thought I was going to major in composition, and I went to a very competitive music school, Indiana University. It's now called the Jacobs School of Music, and I auditioned and I didn't get in. Um, which was, I was shocked. I'm like, oh, but I'm such a great pianist. And apparently that, but um, I decided to major in audio technology. And so I got a two-year degree because there weren't any four-year programs outside. I think there was one in Miami, which I probably couldn't have afforded to go. I mean, maybe I could have afforded Miami. I kind of wish I'd went to Miami because I have a great engineering program. Um, but uh, Indiana was great, too. I mean, it was a small cohort of students. Fifteen students uh, were accepted each year, so it was highly competitive. I got in, and um, it was really, I guess, my math skills that uh, helped me uh, succeed there. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, that, that kind of thinking, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, so yeah, I, I um, got a two-year degree in audio technology and then decided to stay around and get a four-year degree, which is actually in telecommunications. So that's my, okay. my bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. So that's where it all started. Wow. So just by you not getting into that first course and choosing a different one changed the whole trajectory of what you'd go on to do. Amazing. Yeah, for better or for worse. I mean, you know, I think anyone who who's my age who looks back at their, you know, what 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 kind of path would I have gone down if I, you know, I don't know. I never wanted to be a concert pianist, but I thought certainly I could do composition. But I I get my songwriting skills out, and my songwriting my love for songwriting comes out in other ways. So it's mm. all right. Okay, that's no regrets. No yeah, regrets. no regrets. No, definitely no regrets after looking at what you've achieved. No, um, and I saw. Um, so talking about the technology, funny you say it's changed so much. Obviously, when you started your audio technology program at university, the school had no, of course, digital editing tools available at the time. It was all done analog tape. You learned how to do razor blade editing. So when you reflect on this, how much easier has technology made the job now, or do you miss anything about that? Because a lot of people I speak to say you know, it made you be more decisive at the time because you couldn't constantly go back and tweak stuff. Mm, that's true. You, you, do, you had to be decisive. You had to plan. 
you had to keep records of what you did because if you, you know, if a project was going to take five days, then, and somebody else had to use the studio in between time, you had to make sure you knew what your settings were. So, um, well, I worked at, uh, let's see, my razor blade editing skills helped me get a job at National Public Radio, but I wasn't editing at National Public Radio. I was a broadcast and recording technician. So, you know, I was running the board for the live news shows. For those of you who listen to NPR, uh, Morning Edition and All Things Considered are the big shows. So I was sort of at the board for those. But we would do mixes. Um, so we would have the journalists and reporters, I guess they're one and the same, edit the interview. And then they would bring it to this on reel to reel, they bring it into the studio. And then we would have four reel to reel machines lined up. And then we would, you know, start the dialogue on one channel. And it would say, on a cold winter's morning in Northeast New York. John Jones sits down to do his work and then you stop that machine and then you start the machine with John Jones on it. I've been doing this work for seven years now. And you stop that machine and you start the narration again. John Jones has one secret that no one else knows. He loves to paint. Start the other machine. So this is my canvas. You know, so you're starting and stopping these machines and that's how we would put together Right. I just really want to know more about John Jones now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if only he existed. Yeah. So, um, and we would do really complex music pieces like that. So um, on my website, I have a piece because around 1993, uh, I went to interview Todd Rundgren. Again, I wasn't a reporter. I was an engineer. So the arts desk, um, Tom Tolls took a chance on me and he's like, okay, we'll let you do a radio piece. I'm like, Oh, I get to do a feature. So I went and interviewed Todd Rundgren, who's my hero. He's uh, ubiquitous in my life anyway. Um, and yeah, so I did a piece where the music doesn't stop for the whole, whatever, seven to 10 minute piece. I can't remember how long it was, but you know, you have to, you know, keep those reels moving and you have to time them and mark, you know, put grease pencil on the reel where you want it to start and stop. And so, yeah, I did that with four machines. Yeah, it was great. And you can hear it. It's out there on, on the Internet. It's out there. Okay. And then, um, of course, um, now Mix Messiah Productions, which you own, um, has worked on many mm-hmm. award-winning films and documentaries. So tell me a bit about how this started in uni. I heard that someone thought they overheard you saying mix messiah and you thought oh, that sounds cool so um yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are the beginnings of it how did this happen right yeah so I was sitting in a television production class who knows what we were talking about but somebody said what did you say and I said it and he said oh I thought you said mix messiah and we had a laugh and I'm like yeah <laughs> mix messiah so that's in, in college is where I started the name and I actually have um somewhere around here uh, some of my early track sheets, you know, Mixed Messiah Productions. And, you know, I was only like in my early 20s when I was doing that. Um, and so, yeah, the the first things that I were doing, I was doing was just little projects. Um, then I got into no, notation and scoring. And then, you know, I was just dabbling really until I think I started seriously like I made my LLC in 2014 so there's this long sort of period of me kind of dabbling and doing stuff but uh, around between 2012-2014 I started an LLC which is 
in the United States, LLC is an LTD, same thing, limited liability. And I started freelancing um, with some clients who were at the first post house I worked at, um, knew that I was available to do some freelance work. And so I think I, I could be wrong, but I think the first thing I did was called Building Bridges, which was a documentary about getting girls from Israel and Palestine Palestine to talk to each other. And they would come to Colorado and they would have a camp. And it wasn't it wasn't just girls from Israel and Palestine. I think they were Muslim and Jewish. And um, it, it was like an interfaith thing. And they would talk about like these really hard subjects. Um, and again, this this piece is out there if you want to see this little mini documentary. Um, but I was moved by it, just working on it, just seeing the discourse between these girls who hated each other, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and then they get to understand what social justice means and they get to understand what advocacy means. And here I am just cleaning up the tape. And I just was thinking, you know, this, it's kind of incredible that these stories can be told and that I can help tell these stories. Yeah, and then the next movie I did was a zombie picture, which had nothing to do oh, with social justice. Different. It was it was the decline of society in a way. Um, but the next one it was a, a a feature length documentary called Doc of the Dead, and so it was all about zombie culture, and that was a fun one. So it's sort of, <laughs> you look at my portfolio; it's a mixture of beautiful social justice, culture, and zombies. Yeah. What a combination. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> and um, I saw as well, you took a hiatus for a few years, but in 2002, then you began restoring audio for classic film titles um, at Postmodern as part of a subcontract they had with um, Sony oh, Columbia. Yeah. So when we're saying classic titles, what, what kinds are we talking? Um, um, well, I mean, just I just need to back up. There wasn't a hiatus. Like I've been, you know, until I got to England, I was on the grind since I left high school. So mm. I've, there's never been a hiatus in there. Um, but I did leave radio and I left radio in 2002 so I could get my master's degree. And that's when I started working at postmodern. Mm, gotcha. So, um, so yeah, I, I went to get my master's degree. I started working in sound for picture having left radio. And that's when we were doing the restoration for these classic film titles. So, um, they were television shows and films, television shows like The Flying Nun with Sally Field and Heart to Heart with those two actors whose names I can't remember. Heart to Heart was a big TV show. And so our job was, you know, they were going to, Sony was re-releasing these things on DVD. And so they wanted them to sound digital, you know, in other words, not like jittery, scrapey digital, but yeah. like clean and so we wanted to get the tape hiss down because that was the whole point you know um for all i know they had heart to heart on video cassette um but they you know they're like oh this is dvd we should take the noise down and so um back then the there wasn't there might have been isotope and this fledgling stage but into that between 2002 and 2005 we were using the cedar cambridge system and it was this big tank of a thing this is it was not a plug-in it was like four rack space tank uh, with three cards in one for denoise, one for de crackle, and one for de click. And so, yeah, it's painstaking. You would go back. Um, some of the other big titles, what were the other ones we did? The Mad Room with Shelly Winter. Um, 
Oh, um, too many husbands. Um, uh, Sony classics. We did Das Boat as well. And um, again, this was just the um, the remastered Dolby Pro Logic and stereo film uh, version of Das Boat that we did. Um, we did the German and the English. Okay. And were these um, films and TV shows from a particular, let's say, decade, or were they from different times? Yeah. So from from 1930 to 1980, we had all this. Stuff. Oh, okay and what what did it sound like listening to those from you know such a wide span of titles there over a long period of time did the audio yeah, was it I worse mean, at the beginning and then did it get a little better as you got towards the oh 80s? yeah 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 so um so for example um there were clicks and pops you know there's like dirt you know on these films so um I guess when we got them, we had to find the cleanest version because there might be two different. We called them we we called them the different elements. So we would we might have five different versions of a reel from a movie, and we had to figure out well what is the real one? What is the R E A L? What's the yeah. real one? What's the one we're supposed to be using? What's the best one? What's the best sounding one out of this stack of tapes? So we um, actually, there is a guy whose job it was before I got it, um, before it was handed off to me, there was a guy who, you know, it put the film on the dubber um, or sometimes we would have half inch or sometimes, you know, it would be, um, or it would be either mag film, optical film, or maybe half inch uh, tape, real, real tape. And he would go through and he would try to figure out which of these is the best one. Okay, this one's the best one. Then he digitize it, you know, put it in Pro Tools from its analog form. I would get it and then I would listen to it and it might sound crackly. It might sound noisy. Um, and there might be, you know, real one batch one might be the best. But for the second reel of the film, it might come from another batch. So it might have a different set, uh, a different noise floor and a different EQ. So it'd be like, okay, how can I match these two reels from different generations, you know, of this movie so that they sound consistent? So that, yeah. So that archival restoration kind of thing was where, was what I was doing for a long time. Oh, okay. And it got me really fast at Pro Tools. <laughs> I bet it did. Yeah, I was going to ask about the technology. You must have greatly assisted so you don't have to use that massive machine anymore, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and now, um, yeah, now we've got Isotope. And, you know, I think if Sony had just waited, uh, what was it, 2002? How many decades ago is that? Two. Um, so if they just waited two decades, you know. And maybe, as for all I know, I don't know what Sony's done with their catalog now. They might be restoring the restorations now um for streaming i have no idea but i wouldn't be surprised because you know now there's another expectation for what these movies are supposed to sound like and the tools are better mm, yeah constantly getting sharper i suppose they want to keep up don't mm -hmm. they and update it yeah. constantly um mm -hmm. yeah and um i know you specialize in 5.1 re-recording mixing and sound mm -hmm. editing but has um has immersive, you know, Dolby Atmos workflow, has that factored into your projects more in recent years? 
Uh, it's just getting started. So um, I have Dolby Atmos Production Suite on my computer. And what I've done is I've started a PhD called Immersive and Inclusive. Mm-hmm. And so my goal is to um, join the um, Dolby Atmos certification process and start delivering these courses to women in underrepresented groups who want to get into the technology. Um, so from my vantage point, seeing you know, watching Dolby Atmos emerge, what was it, f- between five and seven years ago, it started becoming something that, you know, you could get and put in your, for example, studio, where, uh, university. So I was teaching at University of Colorado. I was teaching a surround sound class. And at, at, at the time I was teaching, I was going all the way through Dolby True HD. I think that's what it was called. And, um, uh, the high-end DTS. I think that's as far as the curriculum went. And then Dolby Atmos came out. And what's interesting about my knowledge and, and my involvement with Dolby Atmos actually started, you know, now I have to rewind again with a, another green tank of a box called uh, the Dolby Lake Huron. And so I was studying this box because of my work at a planetarium. And the guts of that um, CPU had a lot to do with ambisonics. And so the director of the planetarium brought me in and we started experimenting with ambisonics, which, you know, got me into that world. Um, and that's how I met Dave Malum, who is um, second only to Michael Gerzon uh, in terms of his um, pioneering work with ambisonics. So I got in touch with him and I started working with it. And my theory, I, and I, I'd have to go a little bit to prove this, but as far as I know, the Lake Huron guts sort of became Dolby Atmos. Now somebody, there's a listener out there who's going to say, Hey, if you want to know the real story, you know, or that, leave, leave a comment in the box, you know, if you know more than me, but my recollection is that the, the guts and the brains of the Lake Huron system, because the Lake got bought out by Dolby um, sort of became what we know now as, as Dolby Atmos. That said, um, right around the time I came to England, my plans were to build a Dolby Atmos um, system at University of Colorado Denver, uh, which now does have a 714 system. Uh, but I had wanted to retrofit one of the um, one of the old cinemas, you know, make it a dubbing stage. Uh, those plans never came to fruition. So fast forward for, for flash forward to today where, um, you know, I still have that interest in pedagogy. I still have that interest in delivering a curriculum. And so right now I'm right at the cusp of getting that program started. And so I'll be delivering some courses this fall. Fingers crossed. Okay, interesting. Yeah, fingers crossed for everything, really, isn't it? It's just all so up in the air. Um, yeah, yeah. Whatever's going on out there. Oh, let's just right. hope it's getting back on track, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> we hope. <laughs> we hope, yeah. And um, being a member of the Recording Academy, so what does that entail for you? What's your involvement there? All right, so the Recording Academy, um, let's see. I was nominated in 2019, so I'm a member of the class of 2019 is when I joined. And so I went to my first Grammy award ceremony in 2020, uh, which was uh, spectacular. And the one thing that surprised me about going to Los Angeles and being at the Grammys 
was that people recognized me and I was dumbstruck, you know, like (laughs) dumbstruck, like, you know me, like, how do you know me? Like, and it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like Billie Eilish came over and said, hey, Leslie, you know, it wasn't (laughs) that kind of recognition, but those in the producer and engineers group knew me through my work through AES um, through my authorship of um, women in audio and through, you know, sound girls and women's audio mission, all these other groups that I'm a member of. And so I, I felt right away, like I belonged and that was uh, really key, but you know, the, that initiative, the fact that I'm a member of the recording Academy came about because they were striving to become more diverse and inclusive. So this was, um, a part of a, you know, a grand scheme. And, and so the recording Academy is doing a lot now, for example, with the black music collective and some of their other initiatives like music cares. And so, you know, um, being, uh, advocates for the music industry, um, is another thing that the recording Academy does. So for example, um, making sure that artists get fairly paid when their music is played on the radio is one of our current initiatives. And so we are asked to, um, write letters to Congress to, you know, to the United States Congress and, um, push for change in these areas. So, um, that's what, you know, and of course I have, uh, voting, um, privileges for the Grammys every year. So that is what I'm doing with the Recording Academy. Okay. Interesting. So you're a lot more involved than perhaps, um, just reading that title you, people might think. So that's, um, great and great that you actually got to go as well before mm. everything got shut down. <laughs> Good timing. Yeah. 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 That was, that was amazing. Yeah. I'll bet. And um, so you mentioned, obviously, your book, Women in Audio, which you're the author of. Um, Just for any listeners, this features almost 100 profiles and stories of audio engineers who are women, of course, and they've achieved success throughout the history of the trade. Um, So it sounds like quite the undertaking. When did you get the idea to write this? And why do you think it was needed to highlight that women do work Mm. in these jobs too? Right. So women in audio is, um, you know, discusses women and those who identify as women um, in audio. And it was it was starting to become to me clear to me as a professor in the years you know, leading up to my writing the book, 2015, 16. Um, you know, when one of the first things I did um, I have to rewind just a little bit because the, the, the history is fascinating. So if we're talking history, of course, I have to rewind. Um, but the, um, <clears throat> the, the impetus kind of came around 2004-ish um, was my first sort of entry to the Audio Engineering Society. I had um, a video, a music video that I entered into a student competition. So I went to my first AES convention and had a blast, but I met a woman named Terry Winston and Terry uh, had a booth uh, with a new program. She was starting called women's audio mission. And she was an assistant professor. No, no, she was an associate professor at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, Oh, wow. You're, you've got tenure. Wow. That's amazing. And what's this women's audio mission. And so then I was like, Oh, this is a thing. Like, um, and then as the years went by, um, 
you know, it's so hard to just to make this brief because when I worked at NPR, 50% of our staff was women. We had 40 techs, 20 were women and 20 were people of color. When I moved to Colorado, that invert, not inverted disappeared. I was like the mm. only woman I knew doing audio in Colorado at the time and the only person of color. And so I'm like, okay, there's, there seems to be a dearth, D-E-A-R-T-H. What, you know, what is, <laughs> what is going on? And that question, what is going on has been answered in various ways over the years. Like, why aren't there more women? Right. So around 2016, um, Routledge, uh, Focal Press, who is the publisher of the book, was asking for people to come up with ideas for books. And I thought, yeah, I want to write about women in audio. And um, I thought it would be like a research paper, like I'm going to find all these women and I'm going to go to the library online, but I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to find some books and articles and I'm going to compile them into a resource for people. And um, one of the first, eh, I don't know, not one of the first, but I, I came across this feminist album called Virgo Rising that came out in the 70s and found that the engineer for that album was still, she had an email address. So I emailed her and she got to, back to me. She's 94 years old. And her name was Joan Lowe. And she's like, well, that was a long time ago, but I'll tell you what mm -hmm. I can. And so she sent me this email detailing how they recorded the, uh, this all-woman performed, produced, released, engineered album called Virgo Rising. And then it occurred to me that I can't, this is not a research paper. This is a living history document. And I began to reach out to the, instead of like looking up people in the library, I started calling people and interviewing them. And I'm like, this is, this is kind of massive. This is going to be bigger than I thought. And it's going to be diff different than I thought because, you know, a written history that's been established is much more different than a verbal history that is in danger of being erased. Mm -hmm. Right. So, that's what I found my charges and then or my charge was. And then in February of 2018, I think it was, uh, I got a, an email from a guy named Dana and Dana said, are you writing that book for something about women in audio? I said, yeah, yeah. He's like, I just wanted to tell you that Joan passed away. Oh no. And, you know, I was crushed, you know, because I wanted to ask her more questions or at least get some pictures. And she, he said, I have some pictures. I'll send them to you. And so he sent me an envelope full of pictures of Joan Lowe from the time she was a little girl and she didn't have children. She didn't have family. There was no one else who would have received these pictures except for Leslie Gaston, you know, incredible. And so when I got these pictures, I remember I was standing in my living room and I looked out at the sky and I thought, you know, wow, you know, what I'm doing here is more than a research paper. This is history that would have vanished. Yeah, Simple absolutely. As. So, you know, it put a fire under me. And so I started finding other stories, I, you know, the story of Marie Louise Killick who's from Brighton, by the way, who 
um, designed a, a stylus for playing phonographs. And she, um, she was made an offer. Someone made an offer to buy it. I, I can't remember who it was. It's in the book. And she's like, no, I'm, I'm not going to take, I'm going to make this, <laughs> you know, I don't want to get bought out. And then somebody infringed on her patent and she ended up suing them and she won, but they wouldn't pay her. And she died homeless, oh my God. literally homeless. And she had, I think it was four kids and she died of cancer. She would have been a millionaire. Yeah. Uh, her story's in there. The story of Elizabeth Loken, who um, with Pascal Chaudeville developed the LC concept system, which was a forerunner to DTS, whom she had to, against whom she had to litigate. Another case of patent infringement. And so um, she, uh, I found her on Facebook. And she, I didn't know about that history before I found on Facebook. I'm like, oh, here's this woman who did something with LC concept. And she's like, I need to send you my book. And so mm. she sent me, you know, this, this, um, this thing she wrote called Jurassic Fight, which was about how, you know, she left her kids in France who were ages nine and 13 at the time was 1990, mm-hmm, uh, 91. And she went to Los Angeles to litigate this and she ended up just about broke and she went to Steven Spielberg to ask for help and Steven Spielberg helped her settle the case against DTS wow you know so um that history was there but the story about how she had to leave her children in a foreign country. This is before the internet. <laughs> no, it's not before the internet, but this is before, certainly before FaceTime. Like you can't just check on your kids in 1991, you know, from 4,000 miles away. And that story's in there. So, um, you know, what began as sort of, I think I was really naive to think that I was just going to, I'm going to write a book on women in audio. No, it's, it's, it's not that basic or simple. There's so much to it. I can tell it sounds like a must read for any woman looking into getting into the industry just to see what's come before the kind of struggles you've obviously uncovered by not even planning to, I'm guessing of all these incredible women that have um, shaped these careers. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, I mean, there's advice too for, you know, there's career advice in there. There's, you know, tools of the trade. What is the career about? You know, like there's acoustics and electronic music, women in post-production um, and, um, uh, and, a, and some history too. So yeah, I tried to be comprehensive and explanatory and I tried to make it a tool for, for, um, for girls and women and those who identify as girls and women to be inspired by these role models. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And what kind of feedback have you got since this book's been out, Leslie? What what kind of things do women um, and people identifying as women saying to you about after they read this and discover what's gone on before and that this can be a great career for them? Um, I've been really touched by the the feedback that I've gotten. I had a woman take a picture of her baby girl next to the book. <laughs> And I mean, I can't tell you, she's like, I'm going to, you know, 
um, I can't remember what she said. I I have to share it with you somehow, but I think she said, I want to raise my girl to be a strong woman who believes she can do anything. And this is one of the tools, Mm. you know, is this book. Um, And then I had um, uh, people just saying what an amazing resource it is. So it's been getting some, you know, people are Instagramming it and, and just, you know, big thanks to everybody out there who has been um, inspired by the book. Because uh, that's what I set out to do was to inspire and educate. Mm, and it certainly sounds like you've done that. Um, where can people get this book, Leslie? Where is it available? Uh, you can go to routledge.com. You can go to amazon.co.uk. You can go to womeninaudiobook.com. Okay, so there's a few places. And I'm sure if anyone Googles yeah. it, it will come up um, with yeah. those search hits anyway. So that's awesome and this actually leads me on to your phd quite nicely which you did touch on earlier so this is immersive mm-hmm. and inclusive so this is all about the rise of immersive sound across the entertainment industries but it also focuses as you quite rightly said on the lack of representation when it comes to women working in this field and especially people of color they're also underrepresented and um, i can attest to this just from i can i know you know exactly what i mean when i say you've ever been to a trade show it's the only place in the world where there's no queue for the women's toilet or no one in there and also um when I was I actually came across your name Leslie and I was looking to speak to women working in immersive audio or audio and especially in post-production and it was a lot harder than I thought it would be to find um just stuff that would come up for that plenty of men um so I'm just curious you know why did you start with this um, PhD? And um, you'll be asking all these big questions, I'm, I have no doubt. Um, so you may not want to answer them now. You save them for the PhD. But um, what are the barriers to entry for immersive audio for women and for people of colour? And why do you think, I mean, it's a big question, isn't it? But why do you think there is such a lack of representation there? Um, I, I'm just smiling because that's what my supervisor wants to know. What are the barriers to entry for immersive audio? And I'm like, <laughs> Uh, none, you know, um, the perceived barriers then that must be what it is. Right. I mean, it's this, it's kind of like a mix of the glass ceiling and other stuff, but so here's, here's what I found. Um, in any industry, when you talk about barriers to entry, a lot of times the answer is none. If you assume that if you're smart and interested and uh, have resources, whether it's scholarships or money, you can do whatever you want to be a nuclear scientist, go, you know, go do construction, go do whatever you want to do. But the societal barriers are set up to create the subliminal message that this isn't, this just isn't for you. Yeah. And so what we find are, gendered classrooms and Georgina Bourne and I think Kyle Devine wrote about these, um, the gendered classroom and um, the fact that girls between the ages of nine to 13 in this country express an interest in music technology. They're like, yeah, I could, I could totally do music technology. That number starts to go down as girls progress through secondary school to the, um, I can't remember, but by the time they get to A levels, it's like 10% or 18%. Um, And you have to forgive me that the the data is there. 
But by the time people are enrolling in university, the numbers are down to 10%. So they call this the leaky pipeline. So one of the barriers to enter, entry is this gendered classroom, this, this um, assumption that this is a, a male space. You know, all these speakers and, and buttons and dials, somehow that's, a, that's, a, that's where the guys hang out. And we know this isn't, I mean, we know this isn't true. Mm-hmm. And so Liz Dobson wrote about 70 feminist collectives that are changing that narrative. One of them is Women's Audio Mission. One of them is Sound Girls. One of them is the Yorkshire Sound Women's Network and Beats by Girls and another 67 and probably more Audio Girl Africa, Switch. And so uh, Switch is a Society for Women in Technology at uh, NYU. Groups of women who know and have seen the gendered classroom are getting to intervene earlier with girls to introduce them to the field. Um, And then there's the uh, concept of microaggressions and microaggressions were written by Amandine Pra and Grace Brooks and um, Athena, whose name I can't remember at the university of Lethbridge in Canada. And so they found that in the recording studio, microaggressions are even worse than they are for STEM in general. And so we know that, you know, we've been trying to get more girls interested in STEM for a while. Mm. And then to find that the experience of women in recording studios is worse sort of points to the problem that microaggressions are a barrier to entry. And microaggressions aren't, you know, if you look at the Latin derivative, it looks like micro, you know, should stand for little. So little aggressions. What's a little aggression? You know, passive aggressive aggr- aggression. <laughs> right. Or, oh, you, you know, hey, sweetie, let me help you with that. That's a microaggression. But the, the assumption is that a microaggression happened, you know, two months ago and you've gotten over it. But the truth is microaggressions are things that happen every day. You know, walking down the street, watching television you know, cooking dinner for your kids, like what, what is going on? No, just kidding. That's not a microaggression. That's just <laughs> dinner. Um, but I mean, if you look at um, things like um, you're, you know, you're very articulate. And then in the parentheses for a black person, you know, that's mm-hmm. a microaggression, you know, sort of like these veiled compliments that people don't intend to be microaggressions. Those are microaggressions. Um, and they build up, I mean, and they wear you down. And so the, it's documented, it, you know, women my age and, and younger, get out of the industry, leave, because they cannot deal with it. That's messed up, you know. Mm-hmm. And these are not like uh, shy women or weak women. They just get tired of it. These are women who are writing research, you know, who are sharing their experiences with me. I'm writing this research because of the shit I saw. And so it's a contemporary now problem, you know. And um, so then, you know, another barrier to entry is uh, obviously the money. You need a computer and you need software and you need loudspeakers or you need the right headphones or you need a head tracker or you need a virtual reality headset. You know, you need money Mm -hmm. to make content, you know, and we're not talking about, you know, kids making beats using FL Studio or Logic. 
I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about now immersive audio. So we've got microaggressions in the studio. We've got economic barriers to entry and then just straight up racism. And that's not, you know, one of the things that I was just presenting, um, we had like a, a conference uh, the other day from the doctoral college at Surrey. And I'm so glad that I'm not the one saying this industry is racist. You know, I didn't, you know, I might have just said that <laughs> in one way or the other. But look at the industries who are saying it, right? Mm -hmm. BAFTA said it. The Oscars said it. Mm -hmm. The Motion Picture uh, Association, the, the Guild. Um, the, rec the Recording Academy said it. The Audio Engineering Society said it. The Association of Motion Picture Sound said it. And the reason why they said it is because we got to watch a man killed by the police, you know? Mm -hmm. So the reason they said it is because everybody was shocked and horrified by this incident of police brutality last summer, but they're acknowledging something in a way that makes it easier for us to say, yes, it's a problem. And yes, it's a barrier to entering. If you, as what, whatever your color or gender, if you're sitting at your computer doing work and you're proud of your work and you're, you're editing a movie or whatever, and you come across some challenge that you have to fix. Like, Oh, I've, I was working with isotope yesterday and there was some hammering going on in the background. And I'm like, Oh, I'm a badass. I can get this hammering out. And, you know, so I'm open RX and I'm like, who else can do this? And that's bravado in one sense, but then it makes you think somewhere in a big city at a big facility, somebody is doing the same thing I'm doing and they're thinking I can't possibly be able to do that. Mm. Mm. That's racism and that's bias. Mm. They're like, they sit, you know, they're sitting in their chair with the same equipment that I have, same experience. And then they're saying there's no possible way anybody but me can do this because I'm such a badass. And then if you have the chance, if your paths cross is me over here and that guy over there and your paths cross and you're presenting yourself as somebody who's capable of doing that, that internal bias says, no, nah, I don't think so. Right. Because mm -hmm. I, I do it and, and you're you, you know, and you can't, you know, and I'm not saying everybody's like that, but I'm saying even the fact that such a thought would cross my mind shows to you the effect of, that microaggressions and macroaggressions have on women and people of color. I know I can do it, but I don't think they think I can do it. Right. Gotcha. And so this sort of, you know, process of having to prove yourself and work harder, not, you know, all this stuff's all been documented. So when we talk about the specific barriers for immersive audio, they're the same as the barriers for other industries. But also we have to look at who is working in immersive audio, you know, and I'm looking and I'm watching the catalog of remasters that are coming out. Everybody, and I, by the way, I love Rush's Tom Sawyer Atmos mix is freaking awesome. Look at that catalog. Go to title, look at your Dolby Atmos mixes. Don't only ask yourself about the diversity of the music that is chosen to be remastered. Ask yourself who's remastering them. Who's getting that work? Mm -hmm. I'm guessing we wouldn't be surprised that it's mostly men. 
I mean, you know, I mean, I maybe that's what I need to be doing for my PhD is combing through that catalog and seeing who's who's remastering this stuff because that's kind of a barrier to entry. Like mm-hmm. that that roster of talent of talented engineers, and again, I love what I'm hearing, is not diverse. Yeah. But I think you're right. It is all these issues and the horrific events of obviously last summer, as you said, in America, and it has brought everything to the forefront, but things that have been going on for ages, well, they've never changed as much as people say, oh, racism's improved, but for people of colour, they will probably attest to something very different, getting microaggressions every day, probably worse than microaggressions, or definitely. Yeah. Um, so I think any any voice that is then lent to that conversation is good, whether it's you know, the Oscars or whoever it is uh, admitting, you know, this is not diverse. This is not good representation. Um, so it's great to hear that you're just one of many continuing this work um, and raising it to the forefront. So when your PhD is um, ready, and I don't want to <laughs> put any pressure on you, I'm certainly not chasing you for your deadline, Leslie, but when, when it's out there, what can people, what will it be used for? I may, that may sound like an obvious question, but how can people access it and learn about your research? Um, come and take a training class with me. You know, I want to teach, I want to teach you how to do this. So, um, you know, when, when I'm, when it's up and running and when the dissertation is happening and I'm, you know, compiling all the facts, figures, data, I present my Viva, I'm, I'm not just going to put it on a shelf. You know, this is, this is work that I'm actualizing by bringing people to Brighton and showing them how surround sound works. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't even know how 5.1 works, let alone, you know, having four speakers or more in the ceiling um, or around the side. So, yeah, I want to I want to make it accessible. I want to make the technology accessible. Um, ultimately, it would be another PhD, but I also want people to put more loudspeakers in their homes. But Okay, that's for another... Uh, that's another- somebody else's PhD. <laughs> I don't know I suppose you've got to look at the layout I'm just looking at mine now it wouldn't really and you know you need to get the placement right don't you so I've got um upward firing or are they downward well they go up and then it bounces the the height channel down um for a very basic atmos setup but I know if yeah. someone looked at my room professional they'd be horrified because it's of course it's not <laughs> a square like it's half a kitchen it's half a lounge but you know there are ways aren't there of getting around it for the consumer yeah, yeah. side yeah absolutely. yeah definitely there are ways of getting around it I mean there's there's all sorts of solutions. There's, you know, people who say, well, let's use the devices. Actually, one of my colleagues, Craig, um, I, I can't pronounce his last name. I'm so sorry, Craig, if you're listening, but um, <laughs> you can find his research on the um, Surrey website. And, you know, he's looking at, well, okay, if you don't have five loudspeakers, what about your tablet? And what about your phone? I mean, can those things that you have lying around be used to create an immersive sound atmosphere? So there's all, I mean, there's brains, on the problem mm. you know there are there are brains working on the problem so yes yeah, it's an eventuality isn't it they'll just happen and um so uh, about the tech then so when you said studio is it a home studio you've got leslie or one that's just local to you in brighton right so um i'm actually speaking to you from my wonderful studio at mixed messiah production so right there's the vocal booth Mm-hmm. My vocal booth. And there's my little kitchen. And then I'm sitting in the sweet spot. There's three speakers in front of me and two behind me. Um, so yeah, I'm I've leased a flat in seven dials to do my studio work. And then I have another uh room next door that's also 5.1. Okay. 
Oh, okay, nice. And um, I know we've been speaking a little bit off about you're a Genlec fan. I know you've used them before in several studios. So you said NPR and also at the University of Colorado. So you said you might be hoping to set up your room with Genlecs, you know, when you get round to that. So tell me about your use of those um, at the studios in the past and what an impact oh, they yeah. made on you. Well, so, yeah, my first, um, I... I have to say I'm a Genelec fan. You can cut that if you want, but I am a Genelec fan. My <laughs> first um, my first encounter with Genelecs was at NPR when we moved to um, Massachusetts Avenue. They've moved again since then, but in 1993, we were, we were at 635 Massachusetts Avenue, Northwest in Washington, D.C., and we had this um, studio that was, we had a couple uh, studios that had Genelecs in them. So the first time I heard the Genelecs, I had come to work, and Noah Adams was a commentator for All Things Considered, and his voice was playing over the loudspeakers, which were soffited, huge. I can't remember the model number, but they were the huge soffited um, loudspeakers. And I could swear he was in the room. I mean, like he was there. And I had a trained ear, like, I, you know, I'm audio engineer. So, you know, I was like, what the hell? Speakers are those. And they were the Genelex. Um, and so I felt I was in love with them the first time. I'm like, yeah, okay, right here, <laughs> right here, right now. We're doing this. This is the best. And um, like I said, you know, before that, I'd, you know, been in really nice studios, like, you know, on college campus and, and all this kind of stuff. So those are the best. Um, so at the University of Colorado, Denver, um, we used Genelex. I think they were the 1031 A's. And so we did uh, work for Dolby doing a critical listening uh, paper. This was a comparison of three multi-channel codecs. We did Dolby Digital, Dolby Digital Plus, and AAC, HE, High Frequency Extension. Um, and we were comparing different, comparing different bit rates of those three um, codecs. And we used the uh, 1031s in that listening test. So that was a critical listening experiment. And, you know, we had to get our lab at the time, which was the King Center, room 146 on the University of Colorado, Denver campus, um, to do those. And so we were using, we weren't using the subwoofer in line with those. It was just the 5.1 or 5.0. It was just the 5.0. And then at, um, let's see, when I left University of Colorado, Denver, yeah, so up at University of Surrey, they have the 22.2 system. That's all Genelex, and they use the GLM kit to calibrate them. So that's my goal is for my studios to get a um, 714 system with the uh, calibration GLM kit mm. in line. So with your experience of hearing that, GLM calibration system how much difference did it make I know that may sound like a very obvious question but a lot of people may not have actually heard the difference I I can tell you the difference between a calibrated and an uncalibrated system but I haven't actually done the calibration with Genelex but what you're looking for is um not just the EQ to be calibrated but the phase response between the different speakers and this helps tremendously with localization so if, you know, um, you know, in terms of music balancing, if you have, you know, 714 or 22.2 loudspeakers and they're not calibrated and you just think, oh, I'm just going to kind of EQ them. I mean, good luck doing that across 22 loudspeakers. But, you know, like 
you know, over here I've got five. Well, yeah, you can put an EQ in line, you know, right. And, and EQ those speakers, but if the phase isn't aligned, you're not going to get the localization that you want. So if you're panning something from left to right or front to back and the phase response is off between those speakers, it's going to be wonky to say the least, you know, you want this more precise thing and to sort of visualize this um, or to tell you a story, I have an anecdote for you. So when we were doing uh, work in a planetarium back in Denver, we weren't calibrated and it sounded like it sounded horrible. We had 16 loudspeakers in a half, you know, uh, what do you call it? Hemisphere, half of a sphere. And, you know, along the surface area of that sphere and it was muddy and messy, you know, and, and panning things, even, even if you were using the speaker and not trying to rely on phantom images between two speakers, it was just a, a big mess. And so we had them calibrated and we did a test with the people in the audience, which was in raked seating, right? Sloped seating. And so we played a sound and, and we asked people in the audience to say, to point, because you can't see the loudspeakers. We asked them to point, where's that sound coming from? And some people pointed over there, and some people pointed up there, and mm-hmm. some people pointed over there. And we said, okay, let's engage the loudspeaker correction. Where's the sound coming from? And everybody pointed to where the sound was coming from. So that is the power of loudspeaker calibration, is we, you want localization, and you want good localization so that you can pan stuff. Mm-hmm, of course. And is that something that you're missing by the sounds of in your space at the moment? Yeah, I don't have my, my system isn't calibrated yet. Not it yet, be, but it will be. It will be, of course. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, I just wanted to know about your workflow there, because it's really interesting considering all of the different projects you do about you know, what speakers you've worked with before and perhaps the Gen Lex you might work with again. So that's amazing. Um, what What is it that you look for in a studio monitor? Or what is it, let me say, will you look for? Is there a particular Gen Lex model you might have your eye on? You know, and what difference does having good monitors make in your day-to-day work? Right. So, I mean, when I go to audition the Gen Lex that I'm going to buy, and there'll probably be um, the 8340s, and the 8330s and the 7370 subwoofer. And so what I'm listening for is um, to bring some critical material. And the two pieces of critical material that I use are Donald Fagan's album, Morph the Cat, which was mastered by Darcy Proper, by the way. And the other one was a long time ago, uh, this album called The Flat Earth by Thomas Dolby. And the reason why I use those two is number one on the flat earth, there's this really high, um, it's like a harmonic that I can hear right when the CD starts. And I can't hear it on every system that I play it on, but a system that can reproduce that really high frequency, which is kind of, it's like it's air, but it's, um, it's more like that. It's almost like a digital artifact. Um, yeah, I'm listening for that. And then on the album Morph the Cat, um, it's the way the the instruments come together on the album is um, just the mix is freaking tight. And when I solo between the different channels on that album, you can sort of hear um, Donald Fagan's voice. You can hear his breath, you know, and then it's also got this kick-ass bass and, and drum 
uh, thing going on there. So, yeah, I mean, right. I mean, you need critical material to listen. At least I do. You know, I mean, speakers can be pretty or they can be ugly, but what do they sound like? Right. So Mm -hmm. um, that would be my my method, you know, bring some critical material, listen and um, see what grabs me. The other one is Uber zone. Like if I'm checking a sub, Uber zone, <laughs> this, this, this album called um, the digital mix. Good grief. It's got the best sub. Okay. Well, everyone's got their own frame of reference, I suppose. So it's, it's good to hear what yours is. <laughs> Your unique way of working and picking, you know, monitors and everything. You, you need to know it's right for you, don't you? Yeah. Of course. Um, and so I think I've kept you for more than long enough, Leslie. I could, that's a problem. I could talk to you for hours and hours, but um, you probably want to go and have lunch at some point. So I just want to Yeah, I've been, che- I've been cheating. I got apples and brie sort of here hanging out. So, oh, yeah. nice. Fancy as well. I love it. Um, I just want to say, you know, thank you so much for talking to me today for this podcast. It's um, such a pleasure to hear from you about all your work and all that you're doing and your methods and um I could probably spend another hour talking to you about your projects but um you, you probably need yeah. to go at some point so um thank you I'll so much. do another one sometime it's my pleasure oh we absolutely should I would love to hear that I'd love to talk to you maybe oh. once you get your Genelec set up as well that could be another cool one for later yeah. and I'm sure you would have done achieved a whole lot more since then I'll have to write another whole script up for <laughs> <laughs> That'll be awesome. Yeah, I look forward to it, definitely. And thanks for the opportunity. Oh, you're so welcome. Um, I'll hopefully speak to you soon and maybe even see you in person someday when that's allowed again. Yeah, Imagine. Could do. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks so much, Leslie. And thank you. Thank you. Bye. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.